All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Hey guys, check it out. I got Phil Weiss on the line again. He runs MondoWeiss.net where he and a bunch of other great writers write about the politics of Israel-Palestine there and here too. Welcome back to the show, Phil. How you doing, man? Great. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. I always like being on your show, man. Uh, well, man, I love talking to you. I always learn so much, and especially in a way, to you're helping me keep up when I'm not paying attention. And there are very important developments. I guess this is really your speciality, right, is the evolving view of the Israel-Palestine conflict in Washington and particularly in the Democratic Party um, and in the American Jewish communities a plural, I guess yeah, I should say as well. that's fair. I, I try. I, I, you know, I don't know that, uh, you know, sadly, there's not a lot of expertise on this. There ought to be a lot of expertise. And so without uh, those Washington Post reporters who are working night and day on this, which there aren't, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll be a proxy for the time. <laughs> yeah, no, you're doing a great job, man. So, and, and this is right on point here. White House officials know Israel is an apartheid state. But they can't say so. And so, first of all, can you just explain for the newbies, presume that people just only know from TV and they figure poor little Israel is our friends and the terrorists are always after them and this kind of thing. Can you explain why anyone would describe Israel as an apartheid state, first of all? Um, because it's a pretty strong word. No, it's not their opinion. They understand and recognize the fact you claim here. So can you talk about that fact, first of all? Sure. Uh, it was evident to me when I first went out to that Israel and Palestine 17 years ago that there was systematic discrimination, uh, especially in the occupied territories, uh, and between Jews and non-Jews. And if you were not Jewish, you had no rights. They would take your house away. They would take your land away. They would take your life away. You had no political rights. And that, in 2006, the same year that I went out there, so that is apartheid. Uh, that sort of legal structure, and it is legal, especially if you look at the 2018 nation state law, they're basically their constitution saying Jews have the exclusive right to self-determination in the land, i.e. if you're Palestinian, you really have no rights. Uh, this was evident to Jimmy Carter back in 2006. He said, apartheid is the future here. Get your heads around this. And he got thrown out of the Democratic Party for saying so. What has happened since then, and especially the last two years, three years, is that because Israel has turned its back on the two-state solution that was going to give Palestinians a state, uh, 30 years ago came with great promise, because Israel has abandoned any pretense of trying to give Palestinians a state, human rights groups have finally said, look, we got to call this what it is. It's apartheid. And those reports that used to be taboo in Washington 
uh, have been tabooed by the Congress started coming out in 2019, 2020, 2021, and many of the leading human rights groups in the world, including Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have said, look, this is apartheid. It's a regime of Jewish supremacy. And now what is significant about that post that that you, you mentioned is that you have a group of Washington insiders uh, like uh, connected with Brookings, Brookings Foundation and um, uh, other and George Washington University saying it's apartheid. And everyone in Washington knows it. You're not allowed to say it, but everyone knows that now. They've turned their, there is no two state solution. We have to accept that there's one state. And in that one state, uh, the two state solution was going to give Palestinians a state. And this whole thing was temporary where they had no rights in the occupied territories. It's not temporary. So that is the important slippage that is now taking place. I hope that answers your question. Sure. And you point at this article in Foreign Affairs, Israel's one state reality that was just published here and has some notable names on it. Is this really a turning point when the Council on Foreign Relations Journal comes out this strongly in this way? Well, Scott, you know me that, you know, uh, I'm one of the most optimistic uh, sign readers in the world. And so every 10 minutes, I'm telling you that's a turning point. So I think it's significant. Yeah, because nothing that they say is that new. Nothing. I've heard it for now 18 years. But what is significant is that these are Washington insiders and includes this guy, Michael Barnett, um, who's Jewish. There are two Jewish authors who appeared at this event that I covered. And, you know, he's struggling with, I had a lot of emotion around this. I tried to, you know, think of what's, tried to analyze this coolly. And he says, it's Jewish supremacy. So I think any logical person comes to that conclusion. And the um, uh, the problem has been that it is so taboo, as they said at that their press conference on the one state rail. It's so taboo in Washington, you're not allowed to mention it, but I think that taboo is starting to break down. And in Congress, of course, we've seen people like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and uh, Betty McCollum, members of the uh, progressive uh, quote unquote squad calling Israel an apartheid state. I think that language is gonna get adopted by more and more mainstream figures in, uh, I'm sure it will, it's just a question of how soon. I mean, it is apartheid, so it has been apartheid for a while. And as Max Blumenthal used to say, when are you going to say that this table is a table? You know, you're standing in front of a table. I mean, it's a question of denying a reality. And I think that denial is beginning to soften. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm seeing that phrase more and more all the time. And it is just Great. like when I was a kid in the 80s, it was apartheid South Africa. It's not just South yeah. Africa. It's apartheid South Africa. That's the name of it. Apartheid yeah. Israel. That's what we call it. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, when college organizations used to do Israeli apartheid week, you know, there would be these campaigns against them as anti-Semites. And uh, happily, I think that period of the struggle for recognition of Palestinian oppression is over that uh, or not. I mean, the college campus phase of being called anti-Semites, at least now they're going after the quote unquote anti-Semites in you know, mainstream culture. Yeah. All right. So I wrote a book about it so I can just make uh, declarative statements that American support for Israel 
and their occupations of Palestine and of Lebanon are part of what motivated al-Qaeda's war against the United States in the first place back in the 1990s and through September 11th and so forth. And I would say probably even including up until this day, people think that threat is all the way over. But just because they work for us a lot of times doesn't mean that they're loyal. We learned that lesson the hard time, the hard way before. It'd be nice if I could speak yeah. English. I could do a radio show. But here's my point, and I have one. But yeah, I've been going I back and posting old columns from Justin Romando from 2003 under the hashtag Romando 20 years ago, because this is when I first yeah. started reading antiwar.com, and I was just so blown yeah. away by what a brilliant genius this guy was and mm-hmm. how on top of everything he was. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he was very on top of at that time, which I couldn't learn anywhere else. I don't know who else knew about this if they weren't reading Romando. Um, you know, maybe the closest readers of the Washington Post would have some inkling of it. But um, essentially the story was that Colin Powell said to W. Bush, when, look, your approval rating is 90 percent, now's the time to force this two-state solution because this is one of the major driving forces of terrorism, mm-hmm. motivations mm-hmm. of terrorism against the United States. It's our role in mm-hmm. Israel's oppression mm-hmm. of these people. And mm-hmm. they had the mm-hmm. roadmap, and W. Bush tried to push it, agreed with Powell, told mm-hmm. the Hawks to pipe down, and told mm-hmm. Ariel Sharon that you better get with the program. And mm-hmm. then Ariel Sharon won, and Colin Powell lost. But mm-hmm. it just goes to show that, you know, that was 20 years ago and that was the Republicans and not just Powell, but he won over the president for a time until he was basically intimidated by the Christian right that you're going to be a one term president. If you do this, you better shut up. And so he did. But wait, wasn't that in 06? When he finally quit trying? I mean, wasn't he a two termer oh, I- by the time? No. No, no, no. This okay. is no, no, no. He quit. Powell lost this fight by the fall of 03. No, no, oh, pardon me. No, okay. no, no. Sorry. By the fall of 02, I mean to say. By the fall of 02. This all happened like spring through spring yeah. through summer of 02 was the showdown, I think. And Powell yeah. and Sharon's guys bragged to Haaretz that, yeah, we saw the whites in his eyes, but we won and he had to back oh, down. I remember that. Yes. Yeah. But Scott, why wouldn't you, why do you? leave it at the Christian Zionists. Why didn't George W. Bush also depend on the, uh, you know, Jewish Zionist lobby? The Oh, APAC sure. Group? Yeah, look, I mean, I think Walton Mearsheimer's um, piece is the best on this. Yeah. Um, I guess I thought it was notable, and I, I'd have to go back and check my footnotes, but I think the real shift did come. And I think you've written about this, too, when Tom DeLay, who was just the whip in the House, Mm -hmm. right, came and told the president of the United States, hey, man, there's a real threat that Christians are just going to stay home. That's very, you know, loose language for it. He meant evangelical Christians of the John Hageyite and so so forth type persuasion, but enough. And that that was what really made him give it up. So. But yeah, still, I, that's, that I would think, have been the last straw. You know, I'm not saying that it was only that. I think Sheldon Adelson played a part in that. I'm sorry. Oh, Adelson? Fam- Go ahead. Sheldon Adelson played a part. I mean, there's the famous quote where, you know, Adelson is saying, you know, you can't give up Jerusalem, you know, or, you know, that was, he had formed an organization, One Jerusalem, to pressure, uh, uh, um, yeah. Israel must never give up Jerusalem. And 
um, uh, Bush said to him, I can't be more Catholic than the Pope. You know, I can't uh, go to the right of uh, the Israeli prime minister. And Adelson said, yes, you can. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, well, it, but, you know, this was something that Ramonda was writing about back then, too, that you really did have. You know, this was at the height, if you remember, you know, because first of all, it's the turn of the not just the century, but the millennium. So you have the whole odometer yeah. effect of, you know, the end of the world, you know, uh, mm -hmm. end times type thing is very popular. Wow. All those um, all those uh, Walmart books by that guy about, you know, the end yeah. times. Um, and then when September 11th happened and then the war is in the Middle East, now it's the Christians and the Jews versus the Muslims, the forces of Satan and blah, 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 all that. So people mm -hmm. were very caught up in that. And, you know, a huge part even of the narrative for supporting Iraq War II was that this is God's plan. This is what we're supposed to be doing right now to help Jesus come back sooner. And that was, you know, you could hear that kind of talk on AM radio constantly during that time. So I don't think it's... Um, diminishing the role of the neoconservatives or yeah. of, you know, whoever else, uh, just the American Israel Public Affairs Committee itself to say that John Hagee and those and those, you know, especially Southern Protestant uh, Christian ministers, uh, they were a massive and important segment of the war party then and and really hemming in Bush's. Uh, okay. You know. I, I believe you. It's not my area of study. And and one thing I would say is that it, it completely does not explain. I mean, not that you, you offer as an explanation of this, but it does not explain why people like Hillary Clinton and Chuck Schumer supported that war. They didn't that that's not their constituency. And um, yet that Bush relied on that uh, on Democrats too. To, you know, the whole establishment was for the war. The New York Times was for the war. And they were getting, that was the neoconservative pressure. That was the Israel lobby pressure. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, as Richard Haas said, and I'm sure he's a Zionist, but he's not exactly a neoconservative. But mm -hmm. he said, look, I mean, this is just our job, right? And you're going to not get work if you're not, you know, supporting the current thing. And the current thing is we're going yeah. after Iraq. And and I know from that time that what was really going on was W. Bush himself was leading that parade. And, uh -huh. of course, with the support of his horrifying cabinet and sub-cabinet uh -huh. of neoconservative uh, advisors yeah. as well. But the rest of the establishment at first was a little taken aback. Like, oh, we, we're really doing this? I, I mean, okay. But it was, yeah. you know, it was not yeah. It was not the entire consensus that we definitely have to do this right now. Uh, but right, it, but, they but, forged it pretty quickly, though. That's for yeah. sure, you know. They did. And I mean, uh, Scott, I mean, obviously, you and I, when we think about this, we think about all the blame of Putin and what he's done. Uh, look what, how the establishment just fell into line behind this to the point that, you know, great, a great man, Jerry Nadler, has said that he came under incredible attacks, uh, that he wasn't supporting Israel enough and supporting the United States by voting against that war. And so... The, I mean, the pressure that, that was brought to bear by the New York Times, by the political establishment, it's horrifying. And it's it was it was and you and I knew it was completely wrong. Didn't take a genius to understand how wrong this was. Yeah. Well, folks, sad to say they lied us into war.
all of them. World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq War One, Serbia, Afghanistan, Iraq War Two, Libya, Syria, Yemen, all of them. But now you can get the ebook, All the War Lies, by me for free. Just sign up for the email list at the bottom of the page at scotthorton.org or go to scotthorton.org slash subscribe. Get All the War Lies by me for free. And then you'll never have to believe them again. Hey, y'all, Scott here. Let me tell you about Roberts and Roberts Brokerage, Inc. Who knew? Artificial bank credit expansion leads to price inflation and terribly distorted markets. If you've got any savings left at all, you need to protect them. You need to put some, at least, into precious metals. Well, Roberts and Roberts can set you up with the best deals on silver, gold, platinum, and palladium. And they've been doing this since 1977. Hey, if you just need some sound advice about sound money, They're there for you, too. Call Tim Fry and the guys at 800-874-9760. That's 800-874-9760. Or check them out at rrbi.co. That's rrbi.co. You'll be glad you did. Well, and look, I mean, the whole clean break policy was Mm -hmm. we want to get rid of Saddam Hussein so that we can take control over the Iraqi Shia so that we can Mm -hmm. make them insist that Hezbollah stop being friends with Iran and Syria. And Mm -hmm. then that way we won't have to give them a Palestinian state. We'll be in a position of strength. And so we can chuck Oslo. That was what it was all about, was keeping greater Israel. And realign the Middle East. And... Look at that document now in light of events of today and, and who has had more power over the shape of the Middle East than, um, than anyone. The, the Ayatollah Khamenei? Yeah, I mean, you could say the Israelis, but I don't think that's what they were going for. Although, you know, I did, I, I need to find this, but I did, someone, someone had sent me a link to like archive.com where there was this old document from the 80s even. It was from the 80s, and it was an Israeli document, or it was an American document about the Israeli position. I don't remember exactly anymore. But the point was that the Israeli policy is that if the Iranians win the Iran-Iraq war and the Shiites take over Baghdad, Uh Uh eh, that's okay, too, because that'll help drive all the Arab leaders into our arms, and and we'll Uh be able to switch the policy there. So, um Everybody read Treacherous Alliance and stay up to date on that stuff. That's part of the whole Abraham Accords they've, you know, been working on. Yeah, so I think that's probably plan B compared to the clean break. Yeah, I agree um, with you. But it's working out, so what the hell, you know? It's only a bunch of dead Iraqis and dead Americans. Israelis are all right. Yeah, but though, Scott, I would also say that your assertion that in from your book about the way that this conflict is fostering uh, hatred across the Middle East of jihadists. I mean, that is, I mean, it's that, I mean, it's not that it's obvious, but that, that, that was stated by the jihadists. And, um, so that's explicit. And, and the fact that it is, it takes books like yours to expose this is tragic, that that this isn't front page news is tragic. Yeah. Well, you know, there was a time in the early part of the terror war where people remembered that the 1990s had happened and that Bill Clinton did drop a lot of bombs on people and stuff, but that kind Uh of memory faded away. People think of the Bill Clinton years and they just think of Seinfeld or something. They don't know, you know, that's great. Yeah. That's funny. 
Well, Obama, I mean, how many, he bombed seven Arab countries, I believe, and uh, Trump uh, did much the same, although he, he, he had, he, he was trying to withdraw from certain uh, conflict as I, or uh, he, he was reluctant to bomb some people. Yeah, he wasn't as bad as Obama, but then that guy wins the Olympics of most wars at once, <laughs> probably so. Um, but yeah, now, so back to the Palestine thing here. Yes. So Joe Biden is a real expert in his own mind, that's for sure. He knows enough about this to be horrible yes. on it. But I don't know, maybe he wasn't always the worst. I've heard him say reasonable things about Israel-Palestine, although I think you'd have to go back to when he had air the first time. Yes, good point. I mean, it's certainly the case that uh, 40 years ago, um, Biden, when he was fairly new in the Senate, had, um, or this is reported, he was banging the table with uh, Menachem Begin and saying, you can't build these settlements. You know, what's going to happen to the Palestinians? He saw it clearly then, and uh, since then, he has understood the domestic politics of it, and I he won't he, he won't be that brave. He was never that brave again, and has not been brave that brave again. Uh, although he did disinvite Netanyahu from Washington, as you know, I think that he he he's he wants to be reelected, and he knows that his war chest is going to come many of it from right wing uh, Jewish Zionist. Uh, uh, donors. Yeah. Um, so, um, oh, what the hell was I going to say? Well, we had been talking about that apartheid stuff. I mean, I think that that is, uh, all this reflects, I mean, the thing that, that we left that I think I left out of that puzzle is that the polling shows that Democrats, the Demo Democrats, uh, ordinary Democrats are cottoning to all this. And I think some 48% of Democrats even say that, yes, it, it bears resemblances to apartheid. So this knowledge is seeping into the Democratic base, and uh, you have an overwhelming plurality of Democrats, 40-something to 30, uh, I, I'm sorry that the numbers are not at hand, who sympathize more with Palestinians than Israel. For the first time, more Democrats sympathize with Palestine than Israel, and this is being the, the Democratic politicians know this, they're feeling it, they're getting questioned about this, and it's going to affect our politics. I don't, I keep announcing that it's going to be an issue in campaigns, and it really hasn't been that much of one, but, uh, you know, hope springs eternal. Mm. Well, I mean, the thing is, too, we need to coalesce around a real demand here, which is what? I think uh, democracy, equality. I mean, uh, if you, if we're going to be uh, insisting on "quote unquote" democracy in Eastern Europe and um, the uh, the right of, uh, of self determination of the Ukrainian people and right to be uh, out from occupation by a brutal military uh, 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 occupation and invasion then why doesn't the same go for Palestinians? When do they get equal rights? They are of lesser rights. It's one state. As these insiders said in Washington in this press conference, they're announcing their new book, One State Reality. They said, it doesn't matter how much we supported two states in the past. <laughs> that was the consensus of the world. 
It has not happened. It has not happened because Israel doesn't want two states, does never wanted a Palestinian state, just wants more land. So let's deal with a one state reality. And what is the only way to deal with one state reality is to say, hey, uh, people should have equal rights. You know, mm. it's not a radical concept. Well, it's so but of, in terms of American politics, that means what? If you don't give these people citizenship, we're cutting you off. Well, I think that it begins. Uh, there, there are efforts in the Congress, obviously, with only, you know, 14, 17 people signing on. But to say, hey, you are arresting Palestinians. Uh, uh, you have a, a systemic violence against Palestinians. Uh, they're sort of code for apartheid. And you're demolishing their homes and they have no rights. So we're going to cut off some of the aid. I mean, it takes a little while to turn around a battleship, but we're giving Israel $4 billion a year in military aid. And finally, people in Congress are saying, I don't know, or some certainly some are. And I think um, ultimately that will yield to, you know, when you, you have to, Israel has to give these people equal rights. What do you think? I mean, do, what do you think the scenarios are? I mean, that's... Well, look, that's, I mean... yeah. I'm just an abolitionist. I have no use for the national government at all. And I don't really mm -hmm. want to ask them to do anything except to stop doing mm -hmm. things. So mm -hmm. I, you know, I would say, you know, just be anti-interventionist, stay the hell out of there. Problem is, of yeah. course, that that's not really one of the options that's up for argument, right? Like that, the yeah. completely non-interventionist take at this moment, at least, doesn't have a seat at the table. So uh, it's more like, you know, which of y'all's arguments do I like the most? And, you know, clearly it can't be close down all the settlements because they're just not going to do that. And no. it would cause a civil war. Now, if they tried, you got more than half a million uh, Israeli yeah, settlers all over the West Bank. So yeah. um, the facts on the ground have already been established there. So I think, you know, to me, I think that the claim, and although, you know, the Palestinians I've talked to about this think this is stupid and wrong. So what the hell do I know? I think they should just demand all Israeli citizenship. And then I think if Americans um, who support, you know, some sort of freedom, equal rights or independence, uh, for the Palestinians, I think that that would be something to support. And then how can you deny that? It is, as yeah, Netanyahu himself said, it'll always be complete Israeli monopoly control. It's one mm -hmm. state from the river to the sea. So equal rights as Israelis, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, by the way, though, um, uh, Ramsey Baroud, uh, my friend, the Palestinian... Yes. Uh, he absolutely hates that. No way, not until we rename yeah. it Palestine again and yeah. and this kind of thing. And um, uh, good old, what's his name? Uh, your buddy um, from Electronic Intifada. Ali. Uh, yeah. Abu Nima. Uh, Ali Abu Nima, exactly. I'm sorry, yeah. uh, Ali. Don't I know worry. who you are. I just uh, tip my tongue thing. Um, yeah, he also was like, no, nah, nuts to that. But, you know, the, yeah. the one state has to be a new state. But I just think, hey, got to start somewhere. That's my mm -hmm. that's my best idea mm -hmm. for the Palestinians. And if mm -hmm. and hey, they're the majority anyway. They can rename the country whatever they want. Yeah, that's fine. Equal I, representation. Yeah, it, it, you know, one thing that Israel has done very successfully, obviously, is fragment the Palestinian population. So you have uh, refugees overseas. You have. West Bank Palestinians, you, you have East 
uh, Jerusalem Palestinians, you have Gaza Palestinians, you have Palestinians inside Israel, and guess what? You're not allowed to marry each other, even though you're from the same community, that kind of crap, which is apartheid, another demonstration of apartheid, if your listeners need convincing. Yeah, you can't marry this person. You can't move into Israel um, with a person, uh, with, you know, someone that uh, uh, you marry because you're a Palestinian, you have no rights here. Um, I don't know. I, I guess, yes, I'm aware that that is not a very popular idea among Palestinians, but it's certainly true that inside Israel and the politics of Israel, you know, around half of Palestinians vote. Uh, it goes up to 70% when they feel that they might get something out of it. But I think that the, that is part of the, there are revolutionary forces at work here. This is a revolutionary situation. When we study history books and we see revolutions, bloody revolutions, non-bloody revolutions, this is the conditions of revolution exist here. You have, uh, you know, five, six million people who are seven million who have been denied rights, all, almost all rights. And you throw in the refugee population who are thrown out of their houses and over outside these borders, thrown out of their houses. Uh, you know, they left uh, a steaming meal on the uh, table and thought they would be able to return. Never were, their property was taken away. Now it's being sold as Arab houses for a lot of money, that kind of crap, where their village was uprooted. These people, no rights. So this is a revolutionary situation when you deny half the population on the basis of race uh, any rights. And I think we're in for a, you know, some people say that years ago, people would say, I don't like your one state, you know, one democracy, one state democracy talk, because that is a bloody roller coaster. And, you know, the problem is that they've established a situation uh, in which there is bound to be a bloody roller coaster here. It's just, it's built in. And the goal, I think, of all people who care is to reduce the bloodshed as much as possible by yeah. pressuring Israel, uh, which is an apartheid state, to start giving rights to Palestinians. You know, Under I asked Ramsey Baruch about that because it's such a powerful narrative, you know, that, you know, if, well, if you just have equal rights, it'll just, every all the Palestinians are going to grab arms and go to war and push all the Jews into the sea and whatever. And and yeah. he says, listen, you ever hear us say that? All we're saying is we want our rights. We yeah. want to be able to yeah. live in our own country. Yeah. We yeah. didn't say yeah. that you have yeah. to move out. We said that, yeah. but we get to live there too, damn it, it's ours. And yeah. he's from yeah. Gaza, so yeah. Yeah, it's pretty simple. I mean, you do hear, I've heard some Palestinians say, they have to go back to Europe, you know? Okay, that's not going to happen. And you can understand the impulse of the, that statement. But, and I can understand the impulse of the Israelis wanting to make it seem like these are all a bunch of savage barbarians who are going to start slitting throats the first chance they get. Right. right? right. Because right. then that right. means that, well, we got to keep the tiger in its right. cage. It's not our fault. Right. Right. Pure racism. Yes. Absolutely. Great point, Scott. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. yeah, I don't know how true that that is, really. I think um, I actually doubt that it's true. Um, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think that if you look at the history of Palestinian resistance to immigration, occupation, colonialism, whatever, however you describe it, if you look at their, the pattern of resistance, there's a lot of restraint. They have shown incredible restraint. You and me would be up in the hills with our guns. Well, look, there's so six million Jews there now. It's not like this is just breaking out and they got to figure out what yeah. to do. The Nakba yeah. was then. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yes. now, by the way, and we're almost out of time, but, uh, 
Uh, it, could you just give me one minute real quick on um, the, as you say in your uh, subtitle of your article here, Palestinian yeah. intellectuals who've really led the way in moving the conversation here that you want to give credit yeah. to as you do in the piece? I, I, yeah, I just would say that, you know, uh, even this, this Jewish scholar referred to Michael Barnett said, you know, Palestinian intellectuals led the way for us. And it's really an issue of inclusion of whether you let people speak up. And because Palestinian intellectuals have been saying for a long time, it's apartheid and they've been shut out of the discussion. And to this guy's credit and to this book's credit, they say, you got to have Palestinians in this discussion. And um, that will include people like Rashida Tlaib in the Congress, I hope. And there are many Arab Americans. I think Arab Americans know of, of which there are many, several million. That, uh, understand this issue better than any other Americans. And they need to be uh, foremost in this discussion. They've been studying this issue for a long time from the standpoint of Palestinians, which is the victimized population uh, on whose side Americans really should be. Yeah, man. All right, listen, you guys, if you want to know this stuff, this is where you start. Go to mondaweiss.net, sign up for their morning email Read it and weep. You'll be caught Perfect. right up to date in no time flat. Thank you, man. Uh, really it's appreciate fun. your time as always. Uh, same, Scott. I love talking to you. Oh, okay, yes, talk to you soon. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.